Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we want to cover several topics that we're going to categorize as anesthesia complications. And while there are lots of anesthesia complications that can occur during our anesthetic, we're going to focus on four of them today. We're going to talk about first anaphylaxis. Then we're going to talk about local anesthetics and the possibility to have a last. We're going to talk about bronchospasm and how we're going to treat that with bronchodilators. And then we're going to talk about antiemetics with nausea and vomiting that can occur, especially under a general anesthetic. So we're going to jump into those four topics. We're going to start with anaphylaxis and approximately 60 to 70% of the anesthesia related reactions are going to be what's called an IgE mediated type one reaction. And of those, about 50 to 70% of those reactions are caused by our neuromuscular blocking agents, with succinylcholine being the highest offender. So with that in mind, I just kind of wanted to talk about what is an IgE-mediated type 1 reaction before we fully jump into the anaphylaxis, kind of a subgroup of that. So a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction is going to be an immediate response to an antigen that's presented to the patient, and it's going to fall within 30 minutes. It's going to be faster if you're giving the drug or the antigen IV. It'll be more like five to 10 minutes, now depending on if you're giving it IM, if you're giving it subcutaneously, et cetera. It's usually within that first 30 minutes. And what happens is IgE antibodies are going to be the cause of this reaction that we see in the patient. And typically, this is a repeated exposure, meaning if the body reacts to, let's say, a bee sting before, it'll make IgE antibodies against that antigen. And the second time it gets stung, or the patient gets stung, whoever we're talking about here, the IgE antibodies will have then a quicker and more severe response by releasing histamine and other factors that will lead to worse hypersensitivity. However, if this reaction is a first-time exposure, it's not necessarily the IgE antibodies, and it's most likely due to mast cells and basophils releasing some of the same mediators that cause the anaphylaxis picture. And so if you've ever heard of somebody, especially in that example with the bee sting, this happened to me a few summers ago, I was mowing and there was a bush that I would mow around and there were lots of bees that were under that bush and I got stung and I had a reaction, but it wasn't severe enough that I had to do any type of treatment. Well, later in the summer, I got stung again and it was a worse reaction. And by the end of the summer, I got stung one last time around that bush you're probably asking why I kept mowing around that bush, but I did. I got stung a third time and I had a severe enough reaction where I had to get on IV antibiotics, et cetera. I want to go through that to explain the fact that if you have repeated exposure to an antigen that your body is going to have that hypersensitivity reaction to by making more of those IgE antibodies, you're going to have a more severe reaction the further subsequent exposures that you have. So let's talk about actual signs and symptoms of anaphylaxis. So when we think of anaphylaxis, typically you have the different organ systems that are involved would be your skin. You can see flushing, cardiovascular system. You can see very profound hypotension. You can also see tachycardia associated with this. Respiratory system, you'll see bronchoconstriction, bronchospasms that will obviously lead to significant difficulty with breathing. And then you can also see issues there in the gastrointestinal tract as well. When we are seeing somebody that is in a true anaphylactic response, then you will have tryptase, which will be released. Tryptase is an enzyme that is released from mast cells. And this will be elevated. So this is something that will be evaluated after an event. And when you are trying to see if this was truly an anaphylactic response, tryptase is an enzyme that we can look at through a lab value to make sure that this was actually a anaphylactic response and not simply just another event or some other issue that was going on. So that's that's another kind of branch that we can use to, to really dial in and see what was going on with the patient. 
Treating patients with anaphylaxis, we think of epinephrine right away. We'll go into some of the actual dosing here a little bit later in the talk, but epinephrine would be very high on our list for treatment. You can also give albuterol, especially for the bronchospasm and the bronchoconstriction. And then also antihistamines is something that we would be giving as well. Typically, these reactions are most commonly seen from food animal stings, those are going to be pretty much your 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 most likely for anaphylaxis on a given person going around their their you know normal life. In the OR setting, however, anaphylaxis is going to be typically from our neuromuscular blockers. Succinylcholine is the highest offender. And then following succinylcholine, we have antibiotics and then latex. Like Cole mentioned, typically, you know, these type one hypersensitivity reactions will happen within about 30 minutes. If we're giving these medications IV, which we typically are, this is when you'll see them within five minutes of giving those medications. So again, list of the leading offenders, succinylcholine first and foremost, and then antibiotics. And then after that, latex. What we will usually see after you've given this medication and you're starting to see the initial signs of anaphylaxis is basically a shock-like picture. So you can, again, see bronchospasm, hypoxia. You can also see hypotension, tachycardia. I already mentioned bronchospasm, and then you'll see severe hypoxemia as well. So, you know, when we are in the OR, there's a bunch of different things that can cause these clinical pictures. Lots of different things that we're giving can cause hypotension. Many different patient pictures can cause hypotension associated with tachycardia. There's a variety of reasons when we're manipulating the airway, why you could see bronchospasm, why you could see hypoxemia. And so there's a very, very, very high risk here that you would have anaphylaxis way down on your differential list that you're trying to figure out exactly what's going on with the patient. So I just say that to say that we're talking in kind of black and white here as we're talking about, if you see this, then you'll see this. You'll see, you know, five minutes after giving a medication, then you're going to see these signs and symptoms. And the reality of it, especially in the OR, is that it's much murkier than what we're making it out to be in this discussion. These are the signs and symptoms that you'll see. These are the typical present factors. But again, there's lots of different things that can cause this. And so it's just especially imperative that we're vigilant and paying attention to our patient pictures. And we're also keeping this in our mind as we work through the differentials of what could be going on with our patient. So depending on the degree of anaphylaxis that your patient is experiencing will really depend on the treatment that you're going to do. And as Tanner talked about, the variety of signs and symptoms that a patient with anaphylaxis is going to experience. As he mentioned, it's hard to tell just up front based on those symptoms if you're having anaphylaxis or some other differential diagnosis going on. And it's also harder to tell when they're under general anesthesia, they're covered under their drapes potentially, and you don't have all the signs and symptoms that you would like um, without removing the drapes, assessing the patient fully, et cetera. But I really want to talk about here the difference between grade one and grade four anaphylaxis, and then determining how you would actually go and treat that reaction depending on the the stage or the, the grade of the reaction that you're having. So a grade one is just a generalized redness across the skin. You have angioedema. Grade two, you're going to have that hypotension, that tachycardia, the, the shock-like picture, difficult ventilation. Grade three, they continue to have worsening hypotension, tachycardia, potentially bradycardia. You're starting to have arrhythmias and bronchospasm all the way up to grade four, which is a cardiac respiratory arrest or PEA, a pulseless electrical activity. Depending on the degree that you're experiencing with your patient will depend on your treatment. Regardless of what degree you have, though, your initial treatment is going to be to discontinue your triggering agent. Whatever you feel is causing that anaphylactic response or that reaction, you're going to discontinue that right away. Then you're going to really focus on supporting the hemodynamic stability of the patient. You're going to put the patient in Trendelenburg position to get as much of that blood flow up to the head, up to the brain as possible to maintain that cerebral oxygenation. You're also going to want to make sure you're ventilating with 100%, especially if you're going to have any difficulty ventilation or bronchospasm, et cetera. You're going to want to make sure you're getting as much oxygen into that patient's lungs as possible. From a drug standpoint, how we're going to treat this. This is kind of where it breaks down to the grade. So the worsening 
grade of that reaction will determine the amount of epinephrine that you're going to want to give a patient. So if they're at a grade four where they're in complete cardiac or respiratory arrest, that's when you're going to give the one milligram IV of epinephrine and then continue a drip from that point on at roughly 0.05 to 0.1 micrograms per minute. If they're grade two, grade three, this is kind of where your judgment will come into play depending on how severe you think the hemodynamic instability is of the patient. You can give anywhere from as small as 10 to 20 mics, even sub-Q IM epinephrine to the patient. And, and you can go all the way up to 100 to 200 micrograms IV of epinephrine for the patient every several minutes and while you watch your hemodynamic stability from that standpoint on. So depending on how severe their signs and symptoms are will depend on how much epinephrine that you're going to give. Additionally, you're going to be wanting to push fluids, normal saline, lactated ringers, around 10 to 30 milliliters per kilogram, or you can start colloids as well at around 10 milliliters per kilogram. And then a secondary treatment, if they're not responding to that epinephrine, you can start other sorts, other sources of uh, vasopressors, such as vasopressin. You can give up to 10 units IV of that, norepinephrine or, or levo. You can start a drip 0.05 to 0.1 milligrams per kilogram per minute. If they are having a bronchospasm-like picture, so if they're that grade three to grade four, then you can obviously give albuterol, give some bronchodilators. We're going to get into that here later in this talk. Ipertropium. At this point, you would also consider antihistamines. You can give Zantac 50 milligrams IV. You can give Benadryl, hydroxine 0.5 to 1.0 milligrams per kilogram IV. You're also going to consider giving steroids for that airway edema that would have developed. You can give hydrocortisone 250 milligrams per IV. And again, the dosage on these drugs will vary depending on the protocols that you have at your facility, the sources that you're looking at. And you can look at the show notes that we've included for some of the sources that we got some of the information from for this talk. Um, but again, that's kind of a rough gauge or estimate of what you're going to be looking to do is support the hemodynamic standpoint. And depending on the severity of the reaction will depend on the amount of intervention that is going to be required. And I kind of want to share an example here. When I was a student, I actually had an anaphylactic response in one of my open heart rotations. And it was one of the last days of my open heart rotation. And I was putting in the central line. I was doing a, a right IJ placement. Everything went very smooth with gaining access to the vein. Dilation went fine. Putting the actual lumen of the catheter in went fine. I was suturing up the central line and get ready to place the swan when I noticed that the patient's blood pressure dropped pretty rapidly down to about 50 systolic. At that exact moment, I started to notice my ventilator alarmed for high peak pressures. And then a few moments later, I started to have the oxygen saturations drop. And initially, the anesthesiologist I was working with took a ultrasound and, and quick set that up over the chest to see if I caused a pneumo. We listened to breath sounds on both sides. And that was our initial diagnosis was that I potentially caused a pneumo when I went in and placed the, the central line. And I didn't think there was anything abnormal with my central line placement. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Everything went smooth up to that point. So I, I explained that to them. But again, you have to consider all the different differential diagnoses before you just assume anaphylaxis here. And it would have been a valid differential diagnosis that a pneumo would have been caused. We called the surgeon in. They ran into the room. We ended up doing a needle aspiration uh, between the ribs times two. We did a, ch a chest tube placement quick and realized there was no pneumo. I was having very much difficulty ventilating the patient at this point. Patient's blood pressure systolically had gotten back up to around 70, but it was still very difficult to maintain any higher than that point. And I mentioned to uh, the staff in the room that maybe this is an anaphylactic response. And initially we shoved that away because it had been a good... 15, 20 minutes by this point since I had given my induction agents and there was no other drugs that had been given since that time. And we assumed that if the patient was going to have an anaphylactic response to the number one culprit, which would be a neuromuscular blocker, that it would have happened well before when it was happening now. It turned out we took the drapes down and realized the patient had hives all over. The patient was very red. And at that point, we realized that it most likely was an anaphylactic response. So we went ahead, continued to support hemodynamically. I was already giving epinephrine at this point, but we continued to give epinephrine. We added the antihistamines in there. 
I was giving the albuterol. And at this point, we're obviously not giving any new triggering agent that would be causing this. So there wasn't anything that we necessarily stopped from a triggering agent until we realized later what had happened was the catheter was lined with sulfa and the patient had a, a, an allergy to sulfa. And when I had threaded that catheter into the patient and then was suturing that catheter up, they instantly had an anaphylactic response to that, which was, was something that was very rare from what I understood at the time as a student going through that. But it was very educational for me to have that experience because I saw firsthand how much you can know what the symptoms are of anaphylaxis, but it doesn't necessarily pinpoint your diagnosis to just that because there's so many other things that can be happening to our patients, especially when they're under general anesthesia. This patient was already asleep. They were covered in drapes. We weren't necessarily looking at their full body to determine if they were having hives, the angioedema, et cetera. And it's something that I always now look for if I ever suspect an anaphylactic reaction. I will always look at their skin right away, look under the drapes. But again, you try to get them hemodynamically stable, stop whatever agent you are giving. So if it is a medication you're running through a drip format, let's say, you would stop that instantly and support them hemodynamically and then also try to maintain that respirations and ventilation by giving any bronchodilators, steroids, et cetera. So again, hopefully this is educational for you in terms of the steps that you would do, some of the symptoms that you would see. But again, I hope you realize here that it's not necessarily quite as black and white as it's always portrayed to be. When you're in those situations, a lot of that logical thinking ability has to be used to be able to determine what is our top differential diagnoses and work through the list there of what is going on. Um, but this should definitely be on your list of things to happen, especially after you've given your induction agents with succinylcholine and other neuromuscular blocking agents being the number one cause of this reaction under anesthesia. It should def definitely be something that we're looking for right after we do induction. But again, it's hard sometimes because we often see hypotension right after induction as we have the patient under general anesthesia. So it just goes to show here that it's not always black and white, but hopefully this is educational for you to, to kind of look at what the steps would be to move forward once you make that diagnosis. So again, like Cole mentioned, you know, after induction, especially you're being hypervigilant to pay attention for anaphylaxis, especially when he, you know, used his personal example and, and, and went through what that actually looked like for him. But it also is important that we're keeping this high on our radar, even during the case. Typically, if we see a latex anaphylaxis situation, this could happen during the case, even further down the line and into the case. And so it's not always going to happen right after induction. Obviously, the induction medications would not have uh, any impact here if it was a latex allergy. And so this is something that even after induction, still be vigilant and keeping that uh, you know in the forefront of your mind. Another thing that studies have shown is that the offending agent could also be antibiotics in orthosurgeries, but you don't see the effects until after the tourniquet is released. This would, again, have to be lined up just perfectly for this to happen, but it's something that has been reported in journals and in literature as well. So again, this would be a pretty atypical presentation of anaphylaxis, but also something that, that we should be aware of. The next thing that we want to talk about for this discussion is local anesthetics and then local anesthetic toxicity. And I think the best place to start here is just to go over a little bit of the anatomy, a little bit of the physiology as well to get a refresher on how our local anesthetics are going to be working. And then we'll dive into where that goes wrong and where we see issues when we get into last. So when we talk about the anatomy of the nerves, you have an axon that sends a signal by opening voltage-gated sodium channels. When the channel opens, it allows sodium to rush into the axon. That increases the voltage, which then will stimulate the next sodium channel further down the axon to repeat this process. And that's how you get your signal sent down the axon. Local anesthetics can only bind when the channel is open. So that's going to be your active state or when it is in the inactive state. So that's when the cell is going to be repolarizing. So the local anesthetic cannot bind to the sodium channel when it's resting. So when it's waiting again for the next signal, it's not going to be able to bind there. So the local anesthetic would not be useful at this point. 
the more frequent that signal is being sent down the axon, the faster you'll get an onset of the local anesthetic simply because there's just more of an opportunity there in the active or inactive state for the local anesthetics to bind. In order for these local anesthetics to bind, they're going to have to bind to these sodium channels from the inside of the axon. So you get the local anesthetic binding on the inside of the axon to the alpha subunit. This is going to prevent the sodium from rushing into the axon, which would then stop that stimulus from going down the axon. That's where you get your effect for the local anesthetic. So when it comes to local anesthetics, most of them are weak bases. And I'm going to get into some organic chemistry again here that I'm sure a lot of us have long forgotten or have purposely shoved aside in our brains because we don't want to pay attention to it anymore. But again, I, I want to kind of reiterate this in as most layman terms as possible. Local anesthetics can either be ionized or unionized. Really anything in the body drug-wise is going to be ionized or unionized. What that means is ionized is a molecule that's going to have a charge, whereas a non-ionized does not have a charge. So non-ionized molecules, they can pass through lipid membranes because they are lipid-soluble, whereas ionized molecules are water-soluble, so they can't pass through membranes. So I'm talking about blood-brain barrier, placenta, uh, to enter, in this case, into an axon of a neuron. Uh, in order to go through those lipid membranes, you have to be non-ionized. If you're ionized, you're not going to be able to pass through those. So how do we determine when the molecule is going to be ionized versus unionized? That all relates to pKa. And we're not going to go in today to all the different specific pKa values for all the different local anesthetics. There's, there's plenty of resources out there, plenty of tables you can look at. I just want to explain to you why it's important and how it makes sense. So what is a pKa and how does that relate to determining if it's ionized or unionized? Well, a pKa is going to be the pH value at which 50% of that drug is ionized and 50% of that drug is non-ionized. So depending on if you have a local anesthetic whose pKa value is 8.1, let's say, you have to be in an environment that is all the way up to 8.1, where half of that drug will be one side ionized and half will be the other side non-ionized. Whereas if you have a drug that's about 7.45, which is roughly what we have in our bloodstream and our plasma, then you're going to have that drug have 50% on either side at that time. Whereas the local anesthetic that's all the way to 8.1, it's not going to be 50-50 at that time. So why is this important? It's because, so a local anesthetic by itself, if it's non-ionized, can then bind to a, a proton, an H plus ion, and become what's called the conjugate acid, which is then the charged or ionized version of that local anesthetic. And then that local anesthetic can't diffuse into the membrane. It can't diffuse through the membrane. So what we have to do is we have to take a drug, this local anesthetic, in its non-ionized form before it binds to that proton. And then it can cross and diffuse through that lipid-soluble membrane around that axon when it's in its unionized form. And that basic local anesthetic will typically then react with our body's more acidic environment and cause it to become more ionized. So when we inject, let's say a local anesthetic, if we inject it with bicarbonate, bicarbonate will make the environment more basic. It'll keep that local anesthetic in its unionized form. When you put a weak base, most local anesthetics, in an acid environment, acidic environment, it'll then react and become ionized. So by giving a local anesthetic with bicarb, we're going to keep it more in its unionized form, which then allows more of that drug to cross over the axon, get into the spot that we want it to target. And once it's in the axon, then the local anesthetic is converted to the ionized form because the intracellular fluid there is in a more acidic environment than what it just was. Now that it's converted itself into the conjugate acid or the ionized form of the local anesthetic, it can now bind to the alpha portion of the sodium channel. And it's just amazing how we came up with this process to be able to do this. But local anesthetics, to recap there, are weak bases injected into the body as long as 
we can cause it to transfer across the axon before it converts to an ionized form, it'll get across into the spot, into the axon that we want it to be at. Then it will become ionized. And the ionized form of local anesthetics will then bind to the alpha portion of a sodium channel on the inside of the axon to prevent that signal from being sent down. So I know that's a lot of chemistry there, but hopefully that makes sense. And that's one of the reasons why, as I explained, some people will give bicarbonate with their local anesthetic injections to try to push more of that local anesthetic to get into the axon to cause the response that we want. Let's talk about what happens when we are injecting local anesthetics. And so local anesthetics at clinical doses will cause a degree of vasodilation. Vasodilation will only cause the local anesthetic to wash away from the site with the blood flow that's coming by the site. It'll pick up the local anesthetic and wash that away. You can have decreased length of effect there because of that vasodilation. Cocaine, however, is a vasoconstrictor. It actually inhibits norepinephrine reuptake and has the opposite effect here where it actually causes um, that vasoconstriction compared to the vasodilation we typically see with local anesthetics. You can mix the local anesthetics with epinephrine. This is going to counteract the vasodilation that we typically see with the local anesthetics. And again, if you know, it makes sense that the vasodilation is going to cause the local anesthetic to wash away from the site and decrease your length of action of the local anesthetic. Then if we add epi, that's going to increase the duration of effect of your local anesthetic by counteracting this. When we talk about onset, so duration, we're talking about with the, you know, blood flow and epinephrine, vasodilation, vasoconstriction. When we talk about onset, this is what we're talking about PKA. So Cole already went through all of the you know different sides of PKA values and, and why that matters, how that's going to affect the medication that goes into the body and the body's pH and the PKA value of the anesthetic. Again, PKA is going to be the determiner of the onset of action. Another thing that we should talk about here before we jump into last is the different types of local anesthetic. You have esters and you have amides. So local anesthetics have a benzene ring and then they have an intermediate chain, which can be the ester or an amide. So ester type local anesthetics will be broken down by pseudocolonesterase. Remember that amide local anesthetics will be broken down in the liver. So you have a difference there on what is going to be breaking down the different types of local anesthetics. And also keep in mind for allergies, we talked about, you know, allergies here at the beginning of this talk or an allergic response. If the patient is allergic to an ester local anesthetic, then you don't want to give other esters. If they're allergic to an ester type of local anesthetic, then you'd want to give an amide to make sure that that's safe for the patient. An easy way to remember which one is which, by the way, if you have an amide, they will have two I's in their name. So lidocaine, L-I-D-O-C-A-I-N-E, lidocaine is an amide. Esters will only have one I. So cocaine, for example, is an ester local anesthetic because it only has one I in the name. So easy way to keep those two separate when you're considering which one is an ester and which one is an amide. So now let's talk about the complications that we can have, specifically known as LAST, local anesthetic systemic toxicity. When we inject local anesthetics, there's always a risk because we're injecting them in, in most cases or some cases right next to a, a blood vessel, right next to the bloodstream. There is a risk that that local anesthetic will be injected into, into a blood vessel, into the bloodstream and cause this systemic toxicity because it's not staying now in that area of the body that we injected it into. It's now going across the whole body systemically. So when you get the local anesthetic into the bloodstream, things you need to watch out for is that it's going to cause a systemic response. You're going to cause central nervous system toxicity. You're going to have cardiac effects. You're potentially going to have respiratory effects. There's a wide range of signs and symptoms that, that we can see. So in terms of cardiovascular wise, the local anesthetic can alter the myocardial conduction system and decrease the ability of the heart to pump. 
And again, because as Tanner mentioned that a lot of the local anesthetics cause vasodilation, it can also cause a, a decrease in the systemic vascular resistance that we have or SVR, which will also lower the blood pressure as well. So now you're having a decreased pump, you're having a decreased SVR, you're not as constricted in the, the blood vessels, and you're going to have a hypotensive picture. From a central nervous system toxicity picture, it's going to be more likely to have the toxicity for the central nervous system with a hypercarbic picture. So you have an increased CO2 level, and that's due to an increased cerebral blood flow due to that vasodilation and then decreased protein binding as well. And one of the things that we're really going to be watching out for with LAST from a CNS toxicity standpoint is going to be seizures. Seizures is going to be one of the most common or main symptoms of CNS toxicity that we'll see with a, a LAST picture. When it comes to risk factors for last occurring, again, a lot of this goes into play with now that we're using ultrasound as, as the gold standard for injecting local anesthetic, we're making sure that, that we're not in a blood vessel when we inject. We're also aspirating before we inject, et cetera. Uh, but also the patient population plays a role into the risk factor of this as well with both neonates and infants, as well as elderly having an increased risk of this occurring. So again, extremes of age here have been consistently shown to be at the greatest risk of last. And I think this also plays in a lot of play with not necessarily increased risk of injecting into the, the vasculature, but the degree of symptoms that will occur if, if that does happen. And so neonates and infants, they have a reduced plasma concentration of protein binding in the alpha-1 acid glycoproteins, and they have an immature hepatic enzyme system. So that's going to increase the amount of free fraction of the local anesthetic in the plasma. So I know that sounds very, very technical and wordy, but basically if we have a reduced ability to capture a lot of those local anesthetic molecules up in proteins, that means that more of them are going to be free to go through the plasma and cause this last-like picture that we can see. So in that case, when you're, when you're giving local anesthetics to neonates and infants, you should reduce roughly 15% of the dosage that you would give them in patients that are under four months of age. From an elderly side of things, they have a reduced clearance of a local anesthetic because they have a reduced metabolic organ perfusion, pharmacodynamic function. So they have an increased potential for that drug to continue to accumulate with repeated doses of local anesthetic you're giving continuous infusion of local anesthetic, and they then can, can increase the level of that local anesthetic that they have in their systemic system. So for that reason, it's reasonable that a lot of anesthesia providers will then reduce their dose of local anesthetic, you know, about 10, 20% in the elderly patient as well. So now let's talk about the treatment of last. So initially what we're trying to do is stabilize the patient, basically treat symptoms, and then we'll get into giving lipids and actually trying to uh, eliminate the local anesthetic effects there that are causing all of these issues. But initially, if, if they're presenting with CNS effects and they have seizures, we want to give benzos to try to manage those seizures. You can also give 100% FiO2 to try to alleviate any respiratory issues that we would run into. You wouldn't prevent acidosis because like Cole mentioned, acidosis is going to increase cerebral vasodilation, which will increase the blood flow there and then increase your CNS toxicity with the last picture. So you're trying to avoid the acidotic picture there with the patient. If they're exhibiting cardiovascular collapse or cardiovascular symptoms, you're going to want to prefer amiodarone instead of epinephrine. Epinephrine is going to cause that massive vasoconstriction and is going to help keep the local anesthetic active in the system longer. So when you're having cardiovascular issues, again, you'd want to use amiodarone instead of epinephrine for those patients. Now, actually to try to alleviate the issue here with the local anesthetics, you're going to want to give lipids. 
lipid emulsion is going to be useful because it actually surrounds the lipid soluble local anesthetic and that will prevent it from causing the toxicity. This will also improve the cardiac function if we're having cardiac effects here. So your initial dose will be 1.5 mils per kilogram as your initial bolus. You could repeat that bolus one to two times if the patient is still exhibiting uh, severe effects here from the local anesthetics. After that, you'll start an infusion at 0.25 mils per kilo per minute for 30 to 60 minutes. And then you can increase the infusion rate up to 0.5 mils per kilo per minute if there is still refractory hypotension that the patient is exhibiting. So this is really what we need to get to. The first three things that I was talking about with the benzos and, you know, treating the uh, acidosis, preventing the acidosis, and then also treating the cardiovascular system with specific medications. Those are all stabilization tactics. Those are all things that we're trying to minimize symptoms. What we actually need to get to is giving the lipid emulsion to render those local anesthetics useless, basically from continuing to cause the toxicity. Last resort, you can put the patient on cardiopulmonary bypass. Again, this is going to be the, the last result, but if we have complete cardiac collapse, then this will be our solution there, putting the patient on bypass until we can remedy the last symptoms. To prevent last, some quick tips that we should talk about here. When we're doing placement of nerve blocks, ultrasound is going to be the gold standard for placement of blocks. And then when we're also injecting, it is important that we are aspirating before injection. Aspirate, make sure that there's no blood return before we inject. This is going to minimize the risk that we are going to be injecting directly into a blood vessel. And then if possible, obviously the lower amount of local anesthetic that you can use to still achieve the desired effect is going to be best for the patient in regards to preventing the risk for last. And so you're always going to want to be identifying your structures with ultrasound. Make sure you follow good tactics with aspiration before injection. And then just be reasonable about not pushing your total doses for local anesthetics, especially if the block only requires a, a much lesser dose. There's, there's no reason to be pushing that total dose there with those blocks. In regards to managing their hemodynamics, you're going to want to keep epinephrine doses less than one mic per kilo. There are some other medications that we would potentially give in, you know, other cardiovascular collapse situations that we're going to want to avoid giving here. So, you know, and then some of this is related to the arrhythmias that you could see with local anesthetics specifically, but you're going to want to avoid vasopressin. You are going to want to avoid calcium channel blockers, beta blockers. And then obviously we don't want to give any more local anesthetics just simply due to the fact that this is what is, you know, started this whole cascade to begin with. So make sure as you're treating hemodynamics, you are paying attention to specific medications that we would like to avoid in this specific last treatment. So for the first half of this talk, we've discussed some of the complications that can result from medications that we give to patients for anesthetics, such as anaphylactic responses or local anesthetic systemic toxicity or LAST. For the second half of this talk, we want to focus on what are some medications that we're going to be doing to treat some of the complications that we can have occur. The two things we're going to talk about complication-wise would be bronchospasm or nausea and vomiting after the anesthetic is over and the patient is waking up, you get to recovery and they have a lot of nausea and vomiting. So what are the things that we're going to do from a pharmacological standpoint to, to help with these issues? So if you have, first of all, we're going to talk about a bronchospasm. What are some things that we can do to help with the airway to be able to dilate the lumens in the lung versus in the nausea and vomiting section, we're going to talk about what are some things that we can do preventatively and then also as rescue to help with the patient that is having nausea and vomiting. Uh, so again, here, let's start with bronchodilators. And I, I talked about this a little bit earlier with an anaphylactic response, how a bronchospasm is going to be one of the signs or symptoms that we see with a severe anaphylactic response. And again, for the sake of time here, we're not going to go into the full scope of treatment and actual medical diagnosis of a bronchospasm and what is all occurring there. We have another episode that talks specifically about that. So feel free to go listen to that. So specifically with bronchodilators, 
we want to focus on how, from a pharmacological standpoint, do bronchodilators work? And the main goal is going to relax the constricted airway smooth muscles in order to further open or dilate the lumens in the bronchi. And we can do this through a beta-2 adrenergic agonist is the main one I want to talk about first. And what this does is it activates adenylocyclase to make cyclic AMP and then PKA. And what that does is it will cause relaxation of that bronchial smooth muscle. But additionally to that, the beta-2 adrenergic agonist will have some other effects as well. It inhibits mast cell mediator release, especially in acute inflammation settings, not necessarily chronic inflammation. So this is why, again, it's good here in an acute situation such as a bronchospasm. Uh, they will also decrease the cholinergic neurotransmission. They'll increase the mucociliary clearance, so it'll it, it'll clear out more of the of, of the mucus that that are in the linings of the bronchi. It'll decrease bacterial adherence to the sides of the lumen, and then it'll decrease neutrophil function. So you can see here, it, it does more than just simply relax the smooth muscle and dilate the bronchioles. It also opens up those lumens to a variety of mechanisms as well. Glucagon is a great example that fits into this category as well because it increases cyclic AMP levels through adenylocyclase. So it kind of fits a little bit into this category. But for the beta-2 adrenergic agonist side of things, we have several medications that we can use. The number one that we typically see is albuterol. We often see patients with asthma that use this, but in acute events such as a bronchospasm, it's perfect because it binds the beta-2 receptors on the muscle cell, the epithelial lining, the endothelial lining, the other airway cells, and it causes all of the effects that I just mentioned. However, there are some side effects of giving this class of medication, and there's less side effects when we give it inhalationally because we're bypassing all the systemic side of things that we could have side effects on. But if you give it otherwise, not inhalationally, there are some side effects that we can see that are in, in higher incidence compared to if we just give it inhalationally, even though it can still happen then as well. And those side effects will be muscle tremors from skeletal muscle beta-2 receptors being stimulated. You can have tachycardia from the atrial beta-2 receptors being stimulated as well. And additionally, due to the vasodilation tachycardia reflex response, we can have that increase in heart rate as well from that. You can have altered potassium levels due to the skeletal muscle reuptake of potassium being altered. So you can see a drop in your potassium. I know when I used to work in, in the ICU, especially if we were struggling with a patient with high potassium, we would often give albuterol in addition with insulin and glucagon, et cetera, to help lower that potassium level. I've even experienced that a few times in the operating room performing anesthesia where the patient's potassium is creeping up. I've had other issues with airway that I've needed to give albuterol, and I've seen that potassium level drop because of that. But just keep that in mind. If you do have a patient that already has a low potassium, that albuterol potentially can cause a hypokalemic picture. So you need to be prepared to give extra potassium to maintain that hemodynamic support. You don't have any alterations to your heart rhythm, et cetera, with that drop in potassium. Another class of medications I want to talk about here are anticholinergic agents. Typically, we think of ipatropium here. This is going to be the short-acting medication that is used for maintenance of COPD. We can also use it in COPD and asthma exacerbations. It will increase exercise tolerance, decrease dyspnea, and will improve gas exchange as well. And so ipatropium is going to block the cholinergic receptors. So you will have decreased production of cyclic GMP. This is going to allow those airways to dilate. It's going to prevent the contraction there of the smooth muscles when we're talking about the effects here. You should remember we're using anticholinergic agent. So how is this going to look with the rest of the body? It's not really going to cause that many systemic side effects, but you can still have dry mouth, urinary tension. You can see dilation of the pupils, blurry vision if the eyes get exposed to this. So 
Again, these are just some of the other side effects to be aware of. Typically, again, you're not going to see as increased systemic effects as if you would give this intravascularly, like if you're giving glycopyrrolate or something like that. But again, something to keep in mind here while we're using these medications for improvement there in the respiratory system. The last thing we want to talk about in this talk today are antiemetics. And so we wanted to talk quickly about the reason for these, the need for these, where these are taking effect in the body, how we're going to use these for different patients, and then some side effects that we can see with these as well. Typically, when we see the need for antiemetics, the reason we see this, the the high risk factors, I should say, for these patients will be non-smokers, female gender, history of motion sickness, if you've had previous post-operative nausea or vomiting, that will also be a risk factor. And then typically youth as well will be a risk factor for being nauseated with anesthesia. Also, if we're going to be using opioids, if we're going to be using inhalational drugs as well, such as our halogenated anesthetics, those are going to be additional risk factors that will increase the need for these antiemetics. The pathway that we are trying to block while we're giving these medications. So we have the vomiting center, which will reside in the medulla. Incoming signals to the vomiting center come from the GI tract. You also have signals coming from the CTZ or the chemoreceptor trigger zone and also the vestibular apparatus as well. So the GI tract, that's going to be coming through the vagus nerve. Here you have the 5-HT3 and NK1 receptors, and we'll talk about what will block that here in a second. The chemoreceptor trigger zone, the CTZ, here you have, again, 5-HT3 and NK1 receptors, but you also have DA2 receptors there as well. Lastly, the vestibular apparatus, here you have your H1 and M1, so this is your histamine and muscarinic receptors here in the vestibular apparatus. This is going to be typically associated with your motion sickness or if you've had inner ear surgeries, this is what's going to be affected here in the vestibular apparatus. Again, these are going to be the three main paths that are going to cause these issues. Now let's talk about how we can block those different receptors. Yeah, and I think it's important as Tanner demonstrated already, there is more than one pathway that causes nausea in the body. And when we're targeting one of those pathways with some of the drugs that I'm going to list here in a moment, if you're still not seeing the result that you want, if the patient is still nauseous, they're still vomiting, having emesis, et cetera, try to give a drug that's in a different class. Because if, if that class of medicine is not working on that specific pathway, don't give another class of medication that's going to affect the same exact pathway. Try to target a different pathway because maybe that's the pathway that's causing the most nausea that this patient is experiencing. And so keep that in mind. That's why we wanted to go through that for a moment is because there are several different pathways. So when we're trying to combine the antiemetics that we're giving a patient, you know, typically we give two or more antiemetics on a general anesthetic procedure. I often try to combine two medications that are going to be targeting different pathways. So as I go through this, try to try to think about when we talk about the receptors, what tracks Tanner mentioned that those go with. So this first one is a 5-HT3 antagonist. That's the drug class. And as Tanner mentioned earlier, that is going to be a, a part of the GI tract pathway and then the chemoreceptor trigger zone pathway. So not the vestibular apparatus. Now, the, the number one or probably gold standard drug that we use for postoperative nausea and vomiting is Zofran, and that is a perfect example of a 5-HT3 antagonist. So what are some of the side effects that we can see with this drug? Well, it can increase your QTC levels at a high dose. Additionally, 5-HT3 antagonists can block serotonin as well. So those are two things that you really need to watch out for is that the patient already has a high or an increased QTC level. Be mindful of how much 5-HT3 antagonists that you're giving, especially in repeated doses. So I know oftentimes I feel like Zofran can be given multiple times. Sometimes we give it to the patient at the beginning of a case. If it's a long case, we give it to them at the end of a case, and they might have it as parent orders and pack you to give as well. And so with repeated doses, you can you can see how that would continue to elevate the QTC levels and also continue to block serotonin levels as well. 
Another class of medication here is neurokinin-1 antagonist or NK1 receptor. And as Tanner talked about, the NK1 receptor is going to be both in the GI tract and then again, the chemoreceptor trigger zone as well. Amend is probably a, a good example for this class of medications. We give that PO. Um, it will block substance P is how it has this mechanism of action. And it suppresses the activity at the nucleus of solitary tract as well. Another class of medications is dopamine antagonist. And so obviously they're going to be blocking dopamine receptors, specifically the D2 receptors. And this is going to be in this chemoreceptor trigger zone pathway. Some examples in this class of medication is going to be droperidol or haloperidol, and they can cause extrapyramidal effects due to a decrease in that dopamine level. So again, you don't want to give this medication to somebody who has Parkinson's disease. We don't want to drop that dopamine anymore. It can also increase the QTC level, so be aware of that as well. And Reglan is another example in this class of medications. And Reglan is a drug specifically that increases the GI motility, so it stimulates GI motility. So be cautious to give this drug in patients with an obstructive bowel because it's it's going to be pushing and trying to stimulate that GI motility up against something that's obstructed, so it's not going to work very well. Another class would be antihistamines or H1 receptors. And again, this, as Tanner talked about, is specifically going to be in that vestibular apparatus. So this is kind of a nice drug to add in if you've given drugs in other pathways and they're not quite cutting it, this would target that vestibular apparatus. So an example of this would be Benadryl, would be a perfect example. And it blocks the histamine release um, and it's used in that vestibular pathway. And again, with this pathway, another great example would be the anticholinergic drugs as well, targeting that M1 receptor in that vestibular pathway. And it blocks the acetylcholine in that pathway. And a great example of this would be scopalamine. The nice thing about the scopalamine patch, typically we put that on in the preoperative setting and it can last you know, a day or two after the procedure. They can keep it on for that long. I always tell people when they do take it off to wash their hands afterwards just to be mindful of the fact that it can cause some vision changes as well. And lastly, we want to talk about steroids such as dexamethasone. And this is this is a medication that I typically give to a lot of my patients. The mechanism isn't exactly known how it does decrease the nausea and vomiting, but I, I like to add this medication in. I, I feel like it's a good drug to kind of intermix with some of the other pathways and classes of medications that we've just talked about. So really when you're examining these, these different drug classes. And again, we just don't have time to go through all the details of all the side effects of each one. So I really encourage you, if you are going to try one of these class of medications that you haven't currently been using, really do examine all the different side effects that are associated with them. But it is really important that we're, we're giving multiple drugs that are going to target different pathways in order to maximize the amount of success that we're going to have and reducing the nausea and vomiting that these patients experience. So again, this is just a quick list of some of the different medications, the different classes that you can give to try to tackle that goal. So I hope this episode has been beneficial to you. Again, we talked about anaphylaxis. We talked about LAST, and those are two complications that we can see that result from some of the medications that we give. And then we talked about, at the end, some medications that we can give to help with complications we see in anesthesia such as a bronchospasm and that we would give bronchodilators and then nausea and vomiting, and then we can give them antiemetics as well. So hopefully this has been beneficial to you. Again, if you're going to be trying out some new antiemetics that you currently don't use in your everyday practice, again, just look at all the different side effects that, that can occur with those. Again, I, I briefly mentioned some of them, but hopefully this will open your eyes to some of the different pathways that could be affecting that nausea and vomiting that you haven't originally been treating. 